0: And firm and unwavering when we say, "Black Lies matter."
1: Hello, hello, and welcome to the Truth to Power show. And ready for Brooklyn, I'm your host VJ Nathan, and with us today is co-host Scott Raven. Welcome, Scott. Hey
2: there, VJ. How hello. are you? Good, you?
1: good, good, good. Happy Mother's Day. Happy
2: Mother's Day. Have have yeah. you uh, successfully left the multiverse? Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh hopefully, I don't know. Maybe I think we're all immersed in the multiverse, yeah, right? Yeah, mul- multiple, multiple multiverses at one time. Multiple multiverses, like the uh we'll get into that a little later, but uh um, well we got a multiverser uh, yeah, yeah. today. So welcome to Eugene Lim, uh our featured guest. Eugene okay. is um the author of such experimental novels as um, Fog and Car, The Stranger, Dear Cyborgs, and Search History. He works as a high school librarian, runs Ellipsis Press, and lives in Queens, New York. Uh, we'll find out more about him, but you can find out more at EugeneLim.com. Welcome, Eugene.
3: Thank you. Uh, Scott, can you hear me?
1: Yes. 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 Good, good. good. Good morning.
3: Good, good, good. good morning.
1: Good morning, good morning. So why don't we start a little bit about this idea of the American experimental fiction um, as a genre um, both in the sense of what does the experimental mean and and, and the genre of the American experimental fiction Mm. um, and and how you understand that, what are the kind of pioneers of that form and how do you fit into it? Yeah. Okay, well that's
3: a big question. I think it's uh, just those kinds of novels that for whatever reason, uh, breaks tr- form of the traditional novel. Often that's by foregoing, um, foregoing, uh, traditional pleasures of plot for other kinds of pleasures, uh, of form and also perhaps different ideas of how you work with characterization and characters. Um, but there's a long tradition of, of the avant-garde, of course, in literature and American literature and, uh, um the from William Carlos Williams and uh uh William Faulkner and, and from the pre nineteen fifties. And then more recently you have um writers like uh George Saunders, uh is per- perhaps uh, uh George Saunders is perhaps someone who's better known. Um even uh, a writer like Rachel Cusk or um um uh, John Keane or uh, um, Samuel Delaney. There, there are all kinds of writers who try to deform the, the narrative form. And um, I think uh, so I started off and I, w- one of the pivotal guys for me was a writer named Gilbert Sorrentino, a Brooklyn native. He passed away uh, several years ago, but he was uh, a writer of many uh, large experimental novels and he was also interested in uh, uh, kind of constraint on writing like the French lithian writers um, uh, but he was uh, but I took a class from him in college and he introduced me to this tradition in a lot of ways and uh, and uh, that's kind of how I got my maybe my foot in the door or my interest sparked by it
1: Yeah, you were speaking a little bit about some of the characteristics of it. You know, there was like uh, there was the um, characterization. There was a couple a couple of points you made um, about like uh, some of the actual features of experimental fiction. Like, what do they do? Like, plot wise, character, the way they. Can you you get a little more into that? Like about like how the plot is different from like Yeah.
3: Sure. Uh, yeah. I think the thing is the traditional story. You all recognize it. I mean, we all recognize it. Uh, there's kind of the suspense and this, this kind of uh, rising action and maybe a redemption plot or something like that. And I don't mean to poo uh, those. Like those are those are great. We all love them. They're uh, um, they're important stories often told. Um, and the uh, the the things that um, do things different are. It's a wide variety. It's a huge universe. Um, so. So it could be something like uh, uh, Lydia Davidson's short stories, the the kind of uh, uh, a witty concision uh, or an observational humor sometimes. Um, Or it could be um, just a great stylist. I kind of think of someone who, like Mary Gateskill or uh, Dennis Cooper, uh, is a great stylist and just kind of um, you follow them along just because their voice uh, is so beautiful or so interesting. Uh, a lot of non-American writers uh, are like that. Like, um, oh, so, uh, who is I think of the Brazilian writer uh, 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 Lispector, Clarice Lispector, is a beautiful, beautiful stylist. Um, so, in, in her novels, you can often doesn't, they don't you could say that they have no plot or they don't go anywhere or they just repeat the same stories over and over and over again. But because of the beauty of the writing, you follow along
1: yeah and you have a couple of novels out with the most recent of which is search history um Tell us a little bit about that novel and how or that experimental novel and how that uh maybe fits into the larger picture um of your work as well as the the work of others perhaps yeah
3: um okay I can try the uh, search history the easiest way to describe it is not the probably the best way to describe it but the easiest way to describe it is usually by plot. And that's kind of where the, you know, where when you talk about a traditional story, often they'll tell you like who the main character is or the premise or the uh, plot. In this case, the plot is slightly secondary. And it's about a a grieving, a person who's lost their friend, and uh, they discover or they seem convinced that their friend has been reincarnated as this dog. But in fact, this dog happens to be a... uh, a sophisticated AI uh, that emulates people's or, or tries to uh, tries to uh, satisfy people's uh, desires. And uh, at first, maybe that's to bring them a, a drink or turn up the stereo. But it turns out that the thing that people really desire, and it's a secret even from themselves, is um, is uh, is another meeting with dead loved ones or uh, a, a, a another meeting with lost loved ones. And so uh, the the person, the bereaved goes on a hunt after this um this strange dog uh and hijinks and suit. So that's the kind of the plot of the book. But a lot of it is just um is it uses a kind of uh almost like a thriller or a science fiction or a chase scene kind of action scene. And embeds in there a lot of philosophical questions about grief and about um about technology too, but a lot about the emotions of grief, what it means, what it's possible, uh it's it's changing nature, things like that.
2: Great. Yeah, I really uh I was reading, I believe, your essay on um on experimental writing and, and you mentioned the the Olipians who I'm a I'm a big fan of, that I definitely um you know, grew up reading a lot of a lot of those guys and um you know, how, how the experiment is coming from language primarily. It's language tricks, a lot of literary constraints, and, you know, the book you're talking does seem like there's some experimentation even in regards to emotion, uh, and I really kind of like that component. I wonder if you, I guess, can speak a little bit about that, of other ways maybe to experiment uh, emotionally within within a book. Uh, I know you mentioned grief. I mean, if, if there's some other ways. Yeah,
3: I mean, I think probably all writers are working with emotion and maybe I don't know, if well maybe I'm not sure what you're referring to but I guess one way that this book explores emotion is um, I wrote it um, after uh, I lost a friend mm-hmm. and so I reveal that in, front, in an autobiographical section and I think it, a lot of writers uh, have a secret engine to a, a secret emotional engine to what they're working on uh, whether it's whether it's a grief story or if it's, you know something about their parents or something about um, some painful trauma in their lives that they're trying to work out through fiction, uh, and so I tried to give you through a kind of autobiographical interlude a little bit about the grief that I had gone through, and I think what that does is it transforms these kind of fantastic. You, if you look at the book *Search History*, there are um, there are these fantastical chase scenes and these kind of this kind of absurd uh, wild goose chase that these characters are going on. And when you put those two together, oddly, what happens is the chase becomes more than just a kind of uh, cinematic or su- suspenseful traditional chase scene, but becomes a kind of emotional metaphor, a metaphor for uh, both chasing, uh, chasing the uh, beloved uh, deceased or uh, chasing meaning. Uh, trying to figure out meaning in the face of mortality, and uh, um, and I think that those two, like a kind of deeper meaning, uh, kind of uh, in, embeds or gets imbricated in that uh, in that kind of more traditional and more cartoony kind of search.
1: Yeah, and um, as mm-hmm. far as like the use of conventions. <clears throat> So that's interesting. How you're using conventions in order to meditate on the convention itself? Would you say that's kind of what I'm getting from what you're saying? Is that you're using similar to what David Lynch would do in, or what I'm familiar with with David Lynch and Twin Peaks, kind of using the, yeah. the the genre as a way to meditate on the on the mechanisms of the genre, right?
3: Would you say? Yeah, I think I think genre or style or voice
4: hmm.
3: usually there's one that runs throughout yeah. the work, but um, but I think we have become so sophisticated in genre and voice that it's another level. It's almost like a fashion or a costume and, and that's not to derive fashion. Fashion is a, a physical manifestation of uh, of how a person is in a lot of ways, whether it's thought out or not. Um, style and voice might be the same thing and but we've become so sophisticated in the same way you might swap styles one day to the next uh, casual Friday versus your <laughs> Saturday night up. I think that we both Uh, a lot of uh, people are becoming very sophisticated in their genre use or in their style use, especially in their reading of it. So that uh, I think you can slip in between within a work. And then the, then there, there kind of is a additional, you could call it a meta narrative, but there's an additional understanding awareness of the slippages between different styles, different voices. In that sense, like in your opening remarks, I don't think about these books as exactly a metaverse kind of narrative, but they are moving through different stylistic universes. Um, and when you juxtapose different styles, that creates a new style or creates a new object, uh, I think. And, and that is an interesting phenomenon for me.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, thinking about uh, how it also comments on the way in which you have this, what you were discussing in our um, pre-interview uh, questions about what is a belief or practice that you have that's stranger and popular within your industry? Um, which, of course, there's probably many here that we've been parsing out, you know, kind of how in which the general population has, you know, the general uh, publication industry rather, you know, kind of turns out all the genre stuff and, and, and always trying to fit the mold. But of course, in experimental, we're trying to call attention to the mold and get to deeper themes and underlying emotional resonances for readers. Who are interested in journeying it, not to be just like cheap manipulations of emotions, but rather um, kind of finding the deeper well of emotional um, resonance for the reader, so that then they'll be able to, you know, kind of understand well how does that, what is the, you know, this connects back to the question about, um, you know, when you're teaching or when you're giving a reading, and you want, what do you hope the reader will get from it. Um, mm, yeah. And the, and what is how, how do you kind of keep in mind the reader's experience? And we can talk a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, well, I think you and I are librarians. I was happy to discover, right, AJ?
1: Yes, yes. And,
3: and uh, there's a there's a famous the famous library law: of every reader his book, every reader his or her book. Right? There's a there's an idea, anyways, embedded. There's a democratic idea in librarianship, and and I believe that in it, and maybe you do that. You know, uh, I, in that. You would ask me a few pre interview questions, and I was a little bit rushed, and so I gave a kind of snarky answer perhaps <laughs> that um, we're you know we're uh the traditional publishing uh, you know traditional publishing um you know i think like like many things is a, is is can be a soporific or can be something uh or or can be something that we go to for entertainment rather than Education or enlightenment. Now, there's no black and white line. So I was being a little stucky and I'm sure that there's a lot of great uh, work that comes out, you know, in, in traditional stories or in genre stories, and it's about how sophisticated you can be within. And so, but what you're kind of asking is about the accessibility question, perhaps, or that's maybe how I would approach it. Like, um, you know, how do you write, uh, how do you balance, you know, what you want to write, uh, your personal ambitions and desires of the writer and what maybe you perceive as, uh, uh, either an audience desire or, um, the, the mechanisms of publishing what they're more, uh, uh, likely to take on. And I think it's hard, but I also think that, um, uh, it can be frustrating, but I also think that Gertrude Stein had a line, which I often think about, which is you write for yourself and other strangers. You just try to do what you think is going to work. And uh, you hope for the best. Um, So I think, I think uh, I was thinking about this line that someone said for, I forget who, but a small indie or underground music outfit. They said they wanted to sell a million records to the same 10,000 people. You know, like there is some point where you have to understand where, you know, your audience might not be huge if you do things that are, um, uh, not immediately, uh, familiar. Uh, so that's, the, I think that was the gist of what I was trying to say. In my answer.
2: And does that, uh, does that change your relationship to audience when you're giving, I guess, live readings or even, uh, of course, performances, uh, of some, maybe of your, of your poetic work, your poetry? Um, do, do you find that, that, that is a different relationship or um, you're kind of, all right, the people that are coming to see you are already almost fans or or, uh, appreciators of of your work. How's that relationship with audience change with performance? Yeah.
3: um, I know DJ's a poet, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I I
2: met you at the uh, Risk of Discovery series you had done one uh, one, uh, just a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, Yeah.
3: So um, I think... uh, I actually think if you go to a poetry reading, there's a better... Uh, is a Poetry reading can be fun. Poetry reading can be also you can... I mean, they can be terrible, but you can learn something when a poet speaks based on kind of their voice and their breath and their rhythm. That's true for prose writers, but slightly less. So I think that's why poetry reading... That's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons. And you, you all can tell me about your experience, but poetry reading, especially pre-COVID, were really, these uh, were these ways that kind of knitted a scene together, knitted a society, you know, a poetry scene together. And you went to hear your other poets and you also learn about what, uh, what poetry sounds like, uh, in live and in, in voiced or voiced. Um, now it's often hard for a fiction writer, I think, to perform their piece because the attention span required is a little longer. Um, the storytelling kind of uh, it can it, it's not it's not meant for an oral tradition in the same way. So you do select things that are more, uh, or I have selected things that are more audience friendly in that way. Yeah, sure. Um, and I think that uh, I think that prose readings are often less captivating uh, in general. I've of course been through a lot of exhilarated readings by novelists, but. They can be sometimes on the dull side because what the writer does best is on the page uh for a novelist and not necessarily as a performer.
2: Right. And then will you will you pretty much have like something laid out ahead of time exactly what you will be doing, or will there be, you know, even that experimentation within performance oh. uh at the at the day of, of a reading?
3: Yeah, I'm generally a scary cat and <laughs> I like to be prepared. But some you know, but I I've seen people do uh you know, uh more more loose and more free or more constrained
1: things. And uh, I think that could be fun too. Sure. So let's speak a little bit about Dear Cyborgs as well. You brought that up as being a, a more of a political novel, more of a political story, more politically charged. Um if you could talk, speak a little bit to Dear Cyborgs as well, the previous um uh work you did, uh and a little bit about the themes of that work and then we can kinda of meld in some of the discussion around um the uh, and then we can get into philosophical dispositions and and, uh, okay, and all this sure. kind of stuff, yeah.
3: Uh, Dear Cyborgs was a novel written uh, largely prior to Trump's election, mm. uh, so in the second half of Obama. So it was uh, it was in a lot of ways um, a I don't know if it's a depressed reaction, but a kind of um, uh, a reaction where of Feeling of powerlessness as this, uh, as this, uh, uh, as these great problems that we were facing in terms of climate crisis, in terms of economic inequality, in terms of racism were were happening in this in these apocalyptic fashions, in these, these disastrous fashions, but were happening in ways that were either so slow or so um, so ungraspable or unchangeable um, that it felt it felt forlorn it, it didn't feel forlorn it felt desperate and sad and mm-hmm. so I couldn't get it out of that feeling and out of I think that feeling of desperation uh, that's when Cyborgs came out and Cyborg, Dear Cyborgs is a novel about um, what protest has done what protest sometimes cannot do the nature of protest uh, the, the way the protest culture can get co-opted um, and the way that we can uh, try to live uh, you know try to be as um, compassionate and moral as possible despite having little control uh, or feeling feeling like one has little control over uh, big political consequences and that hasn't really changed it has only gotten worse and I didn't think that we would go to uh, the Neo-fascistic period that we went to, but uh, but it went from uh, it went from a dark time, to even a darker time. The uh, there is this quote uh, that the John McCain, who I'm not a fan of, I once heard him say a speech in a speech. This joke, which I thought was pretty funny, it's it's um, it's always it's always darkest uh, before it's uh, before it's really, really dark. <laughs> so it was a, it was a moment. Or anyways, it was a moment where um, I felt, and I think many people felt, a, uh, a helplessness and a powerlessness, and we tried to imagine uh, if there were any agency possible, and if not, what was left. Mm.
1: Yeah, it's interesting how when we talk about, uh, meta levels and, and like also it reminds me a little bit of how the meme culture, how it's t- different tiers of memes, how they reference previous things. So of course, in that quote, it's always darkest before it's really, really dark, references the idea that it's always darkest before the dawn. And then, you know, you're kind of, you, with that awareness, with that kind of cliched awareness of the modalities of the, of the times, we're then commenting on it in a way that is fresh or not I don't know if fresh is the word, but you know we're trying to re-examine it um, in a way it's relative to the position we're in now. So in that way, like meme culture is another thing that um, you know, and when you talk about uh AI and talk about uh, computer technology, you know how meme culture has become and uh, infectious thoughts have become uh, the the current norm. Um, and how to surprise people with that? Like, in other words, like you know, we have these different tiers of memes which reference other memes and all this kind of stuff. Um, if you comment a little bit on internet culture and what's your opinion on, it, what's your thoughts on that, and how how it brings into your work or if it does.
3: Yeah, I don't know if i uh, if I have great thoughts about it. I think we've always had a kind of meme culture, but the the formalizing of memes into these bursts. Of short text and image, mm-hmm. I think is due to the, you know due to this attention economy where we're just where we have been um, our, our daily interaction with the internet has become so um, so non-linear. So you are not looking at one thing for a long time. We're not reading through the New York Times or the newspaper from article to article from beginning to end. We're switching from tabs to the first lead paragraphs to or, or maybe just the headline. or scrolling scrolls yeah. uh, mm. through our social media feed. So, so so meme culture, we've always had memes. We've always had like this, these infectious ideas. even I think Burroughs you know had an idea virus. Uh, you know had, Burroughs Burough had, had an idea called uh, an idea virus I think. But, um, but so we've always had um, meme culture, but it's become formalized in this way. I think that is a result of, of the changes of, of our attention and, and how that's come about because of our interaction with the internet mm.
4: um,
3: in, in terms of, uh, and I think that, you know, it, it can probably be weaponized both ways. Like you can have fighting competing means, but in fundamentally the, the, the language or the methodology of communication is one that does not allow, um, well, is, is quick. You know, and then there are there are um, consequences because of the, the brevity uh, and the, the shortness of attention that it requires. Mm. Um, yeah, so I guess that's that's, that's what I think about news culture. Right? Yeah,
2: and then as that maybe ties to your own writing process, are you uh, are you finding? Are you using the internet while you're writing? Are you, are, do you shut off kind of the whole uh, search engines and whatnot while you're creating something um, just to be able to, to stay in your own experience? Um, how, how do you balance that, the idea of like maybe a research before, before a book and then while you're actually writing, um, having access to, to, to this, all this
3: information? Yeah, well, simultaneously to what, what I just said, well, I'm not writing mean. I am writing, you know, relatively quick narratives or short narratives, shorter narratives that um, are juxtaposed next to each other. But the shortness and the variety of those narratives, I think, are a reflection also of the culture. Speaking of how we jump from tab to tab to tab to tab, but also narrative and genre and uh, voice to voice to voice to voice. And we're okay with it. We don't need a story to be completed. Almost. We pick them up and, uh, and put them down and pass through all these different narrative universes constantly. And that, I think, is a result of the internet and has resulted in, in a change in, 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 in mm-hmm. the way I write and the forms that I write.
4: Yeah. Um,
3: in terms of... Okay, thanks.
4: go
3: ahead. Oh, I was going to say, in, in terms of process, I generally try to write uh, by longhand. I think specifically because... Um, and away from the computer to get, A, to get away from distractions of constantly trying to research or look things up, and also as a way to, you know, almost uh, as a disciplinary method to keep me more focused. Yeah. Mm.
1: So it's interesting, it after, you know, I realized how many points of uh, contact we have. Among them is the interest you have in Zen. Uh, you, you noticed uh threshold, Philosophy or civic work that changed your view of the world, and you noted uh dropping ashes in the Buddha, uh, Zen Master um, Zon San's uh introduction to yeah, one is introduction to Korean and you've talked a little bit about that and and how you connect with Buddhism.
3: Yeah, well, I I around at the archives of the show, and I think there's a spirituality component to your show as well. Um, and I and I'm happy to talk about that. I um I think when I was very young, well, so I mean, when I was in my twenties, I was—I had a crisis that, and maybe most people have it, or maybe I don't know. But about how am I going to be an adult? I mean, what am I going to? How am I going to interact with the world? Or, or it was just kind of a uh, philosophical or kind of spiritual crisis. And I looked around um, and uh, different. I guess practice groups for styles, and I did find um, the Quan School of Zen, which is was founded by a guy named Zen Master Simson, who passed away, but was a was a kind of a, a respected teacher in Korea and Japan, a high ranking kind of Zen Master, and he came to the States and landed in Providence, Rhode Island, and he didn't speak English very well, and, and legend had it he started uh, repairing. Uh, washing machines at a laundromat or something like that in Providence met some Brown University students and very quickly um, students came to him and and recognized uh, that he had something valuable to teach and set up this school which has now uh, a lot of different practice centers throughout the world Um, and uh, so anyways uh, that was the recent that wasn't the impressive part the impressive part is his teaching which is wild and um uh, has a Zen style, but also has kind of a um, it's a strong sense of humor um, and a clarity uh, in that book and in uh, in that school uh, which which was deeply helpful for me in terms of both teaching teaching like basic ideas of medication and Buddhist philosophy but also if there's a living tradition where they have um they have, like, like Soto of Zen or, or Zen schools or Buddhist schools uh, throughout the world, they have retreats and they have interviews uh, with teachers and, and form a koan, koan or koan practice. So that's been part of my life for a long time, and I'm not, no expert, but I um, I found it extremely grounding and helpful throughout my life through, through ever, ever since I started practicing it.
1: Yeah, I want to also offer you a chance to read a little bit from your work. So we'll take a few minutes, like five, maybe five minutes up to uh, as much as you'd like to take uh, to get a chance to read a little bit from your work.
3: Oh, okay. Um, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I'll read a paragraph, and then I'll think about what to read next. Here's right, a paragraph from a, book, uh, from a chapter called Inauthentic Sushi. And let's read really, it. The old team. What was left of it? This is a team of superheroes, but you don't have to know about that. The old team, what was left of it? And by, by that, I mean Muriel, Dave, two or three others, and myself, gathered for lunch one day at Inauthentic Sushi. This is not the restaurant's real name, but is what we call it, since it is owned by a genial and painfully good-looking 1.5-gen Korean couple. The food is all made by Mexicans from Chiapas, and the late staff is mostly from Fujian. Dave, who is Korean-American and therefore perhaps slightly biased, says it's okay to appropriate Japanese food culture because they were aggressors in the Second World War. I don't really understand how you two are related, but on the other hand, maybe I do, because somehow, despite the averageness of the sushi and the unexplained addition of beaver bop to the menu, I'm always quite happy to eat at inauthentic sushi. I really like the Philadelphia role. That's a bit from inauthentic Sushi. Thank you. Sure. Um, okay, I will try to find and read you something else. Um, okay. If you, if you give me a moment, if you want to. Sure, really, sure. Of Yeah. Uh, but I'm happy to do whatever you want.
1: Sure, sure. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, an interesting passage. You know, we're thinking about the uh, theming Inauthentic Sushi. So I think it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice.
2: I was thinking inauthentic in Mexican as well. We just had yeah. Cinco de Mayo, which happens. Uh, yeah constantly too
1: where um yeah the whole uh discussion around culture and the 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 dialogue between cultures and dominant cultures hegemony versus lesser you know like not lesser but like you know marginalized i guess you might say kind of like how the power dynamic goes and then, then we think about authenticity there's always different ways to parse it out you know
3: yeah, I think authenticity versus appropriation. When yeah. cultures meet and culture culture exchange happens, I think there's a deep, deep sensitivity or, or worry right now that uh things are being appropriated and I think that those are legitimate uh concerns. But also for cultural exchange to happen there has to be a little bit of, of looseness around it, like where you can you can go over and try to or cross over or transcend or try to um Try to speak, and there's also all these inauthentic things that are happening all around us, like uh, at your inauthentic Mexicanism, inauthentic sushi places, and um, it's just a new thing. It's a new, it's a new authentic thing that is not that that is derived.
1: Yeah, that 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 kind of comments a little bit, uh, circling back to Western Buddhism, how like Western Buddhism Mm -hmm. has rooted itself in the West, and now they have a very different tradition than the. Um traditional Buddhism of the East, you know? And they've kind no, of created their own their own lineage in a sense.
3: I was reading last night a uh, TikTok from the Old Pass White Cloud, um, which is a uh, kind of long story of the Buddhist life through the uh through the perspective of a I think a buffalo herding boy, but it's it's really uh, it's um, anyways, it's a. It's both a scholarly and kind of a um, historical overview of the Buddha's life. But anyways, there's one point where these two linguistic, former linguistic scholars um, approach the Buddha uh, and they become converted to become bhikkhus, become um, uh, monks. And they say, you know, there's a lot of translation problems even in this area of South Asia now where we're, uh, you speak in one language, you speak your sermons in one language, the sutras in one language, and then they get translated, and we're having all kinds of translation problems. Why don't we, these linguistic scholars, said, formalize it in a classical language, in the, in the scholarly language? Uh, I forget what that was at the time. And, uh, and then it'll be codified, you know, be it, and then there will be no, none of these doc, doctrinal squabbles or, or doctrine squabbles or, um, or, 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 or um, misunderstandings about your teaching. And the Buddha thought, thought about it for a while, according to Thich Nhat Hanh, and said, um, "You know what? I don't think that's a good idea. Uh, we need a living teaching. It has to constantly be um, made alive by uh, the, the people that are practicing, uh, the teachers that are practicing. And let's just let's not codify. it, Let's not say it's, it's one thing, but let it be um, a living practice. So that wherever, whatever nation or culture." uh, the teaching goes to, it can become, uh, take root there and, uh, become, uh, whatever form of Buddhism arrives at that place. And I think, I think that was very wise and kind of speaks to what you're saying about, um, the translation or the seeding of Buddhism in the West.
1: Hmm. Thank you. So I'm hearing a little bit more from your work,
3: I believe. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah. This is a short, this is a short, uh, advice column uh, and it's called How to Do a French Exit This is how you leave a party without saying goodbye It's easy It's like Alan Carr's The Easy Way to Stop Smoking You can't give preface, pressy to an enchantment You can't give summary to enchantment But here's my paraphrase of Carr's method Stop Smoking The Talking Heads have a song called Heaven in which David Byrne sings, there is a party and everyone is there. Everyone will leave at exactly the same time. David Byrne knows there is no heaven. You can hear it in the song. There's an equal and opposite force to the French leave. It's FOMO, more directly, in a pure logical sense. The equal and opposite force is the fear of being rude, of not following etiquette or protocol, but more truthfully, if less directly, that is, more via the sense of poetry, it's the fear of missing out. No one but you cares that much if you stay or if you go. You've already made eye contact. That's the important thing. But something within feels that's too light an imprint. And so you must make your presence confirmed, haloed, by announcing it's end or else maybe you weren't there. And then maybe you won't be invited to the next. This whole thing might be about Instagram. Some people die without saying goodbye. That is completely Freaking different from what I'm talking about. I'm talking about leaving social occasions, of leaving a party. Life is not a party. There are variants where you say goodbye without saying goodbye. If you're on the same wavelength with someone, not saying goodbye is the best. It means you're always connected. Parents of small children usually take a French leave from gatherings at the playground. This is because little children are egotistical monsters, and parents are their servants. This is acceptable because we all began as such monsters. The lesson here is that you too can take a French leave because you too are servant to a monster. Which one? There are also numbers involved. The smaller the party, the more difficult the French exit. Not necessarily more difficult to enact. But the key component of the French exit is not the act of leaving without saying goodbye, but rather it is to make the act of goodbye meaningless. The aim is a faint, fading question in the left-behind, back-mind. If it instead raises a persistent or growing question, then you screwed it up. I take back what I said about it being easy. It's pretty hard. It's as hard as Alan Carr's The Easy Way to Stop Smoking. Thank you.
1: Thank you, thank you. Interesting, interesting. And, um, you know, for the for the listeners um, tuning in, um, you know, making a French exit do something without asking permission, basically, it's like when you leave a party without saying goodbye, so, uh, that's yeah, there interesting, are other,
3: there, there are a lot of, yeah, the, tell the us deep, a little the, more, the yeah. exit, the Irish exit, the French call it, uh, uh, the British exit, in French, I mean, it's just, it, but it's simply, uh, leaving a party without saying goodbye, there, there's some versions of it where you leave a, a party without paying for your, Portion of the bill. Oh, yeah. That's also that might be good. I'm not going to say which which it is, but that can also be called a, a French egg, or, or a Greek egg,
1: or an Irish or Yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting. Um, yeah, it's interesting how like when we have these like again. If in my mind, it still seems like return to the to the ideas of memes of like you know how like we're commenting on known or infectious thoughts, and we're kind of in a sense kind of making a meta commentary. And um, that's the way I at least parse it um, as a way of, of understanding these things that are implicitly like in the in the culture or in the environment and kind of calling attention to or pulling out various aspects of the environment that the mental environment that we're all kind of conditioned into and therefore calling attention and getting that that consciousness um, thread, the emotional thread underneath it. I feel like is what's happening in the writing, you know. Well, how do you feel about yeah, that good. does that land uh,
3: yeah, say a little bit more about that yeah, I in mean, other words,
1: is, yeah, like in other words like uh you know we, we there's a lot of assumptions around things, like for example, when you're at a party, if someone were to leave, there's an assumption around that you know the act and uh and a relative assumptions, lots of and underlying premises around, and then culturally, we enshrine it as being a French exit or a, Whatever it is, as as being as something that is, we pass judgment over. Then and then now, what we have in, in this kind of experimental form, we're kind of calling attention and kind of making commentary, and also kind of questioning our assumptions around that. I feel like I feel like when listening to that passage, uh, especially I was kind of thinking about all the different networks of associations we have, the web of associations as part of consciousness. You know, I was reading my conscious. I'm very interested in consciousness studies as well. And like how when we achieve consciousness, we have this web of associations around. And it kind of reminds me of that as well. These, The web in which consciousness exists. Uh, all these associations, all these different... Um, yeah, the web is the best way of putting it. The net or web of how yeah, all these different are they, things are connected. Yeah, Yeah,
3: I think there are two things there. Like that particular piece might be about certain assumptions we have. when I. Uh, it might be about our FOMO, It might be a commentary on on what makes us so addicted to social media. Like why are we, um, uh, why are we, uh, why do we feel so, um, so attached or so driven by uh, the responses we get to social media or just Needing to see, to scroll through, to find, uh, uh, to you know, to to see the to the status really the status not just of where they are but uh, comparing ourselves to them. Uh, that's the that's that's the that's the addiction and the uh, the pain of social media. And that might be something that this is talking about. How to leave the party is like the real world. Uh, version of that same uh, of that same thing that's been uh, uh, maximized and hyper hyper actualized via social media, but your question about uh, all, all pervading consciousness and the web of consciousness and injure the net kind of thing that that's it. those are beautiful ideas as well uh, and mm. uh, I, we could talk about that or we could talk a little bit about that and we can go that direction as well.
1: Yeah, I just feel like when I'm listening to, or when I kind of read a little bit of your work, that that the idea that you're kind of parsing out in in the way it's kind. Of, well, we can talk a little bit about literary terms like the stream of consciousness, or to what extent are you influenced by that, and like to what extent is consciousness kind of like I just keep hearing that idea that you're kind of jumping or a little bit like making associative leaps in the writing in the sense of like you're kind of saying something and then making it associative it requires a little bit of focus and concentration to like understand or follow that's what I think we were discussing earlier in the show, uh the con- the need for concentration or the need for focus to follow the-, the writer's or the the dialogue the the leaps that are being made. You know, and if you can out, yeah, exactly.
3: I mean I think that piece, that particular piece is more like that than others. It's closer mm. to poetry in the sense that Um, one line versus the next, uh, a lot of poetry is about the turn, right? The the unexpected relation of uh, the next, the one line from the phrase prior to it, or the leaps, not even necessarily a big leap, but the turn of thought that happens when you go from line to line in poetry. Um, And, 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 whether it's a big jump or the rhythm of the jump, or 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 the movement of the jump from one area of thought to another, I think that happens a lot in poetry, especially contemporary poetry, and uh, that's what this is doing. But maybe more on the sentence to sentence level.
1: Yeah, and then also um, as we start to wind down, we're about fifteen minutes in. I got a uh, sure. this is the Truth to Power show on Radio for Brooklyn. I'm here with co-host Scott Raven and special guest Eugene Lim. Um, well, we talked a little bit about now. We, and question number 10, I always put down, there's always these questions around uh, the themes of the show, um, you know, which I kind of define as the truth to power show, um, being like when we find our truth and how it empowers us and as being a commentary on uh, the metapolitical, you know, commentary on the person's political, or you know, kind of truth to power and the political structures involved in it. But in order to really challenge those structures, we need to find, well, what is truth and what is our truth and how can we empower ourselves? You had a very interesting answer to what does that mean to you. Uh, I didn't. I wanted to give you a chance to kind of expound a little bit on uh, some of the things you were sure. saying there. Yeah.
3: I guess I had two. Immediate responses. I don't know how well thought out there, but the um, one is truth to power is, is not. I think even uh, truth to power doesn't work, often. Power is not interested in what what truth is. Power knows uh, how the game works. Truth to power is 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 almost an expression of. What you we have discovered in how, in the inequities of power, or the or the injustice of how power operates, and we want to articulate it to uh, we, not to power necessarily, because you know people don't change usually out of shame, or uh, they they generally know what they're doing often. Uh, so it's more of a it's I think uh, um, what's the so Chomsky says it's like you're. Your, uh, you, what you want to expound your truth, or when you want to expose a truth to, is to the people, you know, to others. It's not to power. You're not mm. speaking truth to power. You're speaking truth to the people. So the people can speak power to power. Um, and then the, the uh, and I was gonna say, um, the other thing about truth is the Niels Bohr. I said that quote to you, which Niels Bohr, the physicist, had this great quote, which I'm gonna butcher. But I think often in terms of dogmatism or ideas about truth, and he said something like this: the opposite of a small truth is a lie. The opposite of a small truth is a lie. The opposite of a big cosmic truth, however, is another big cosmic truth. Mm. And so I think I think that there is a, that there is a utility in the small smaller truth. There's a necessity because we have to um, we have to. Use models. you have to use tools to progress. But often, what is happening when you when you get close to a really important truth is it's hard to language, and you can get an aspect of it, and then it turns out that the that a contrary or counter or adjacent or a, you know a, a perpendicular truth is actually um, is actually also true. Uh, so. Uh, so that's why that's why when you asked me about the phrase "truth and power," those t- the, you know those two um, uh, those two responses came to mind. Uh, of course, I'm, I I think that uh, uh, showing power uh, sh- showing the injustices of power is important, mm. uh, and that is I don't mean the opposite of that.
1: Of course, of course, yeah. You're just exp- uh, kind of exploring. Like as I was saying about the truth and the boundaries of truth and where where exactly how exactly do we even even people when we think about power, it's like you know, it's it's so illusionary with um it's so what's the word? Like um like uh deceptive that the idea that people inherently have power that rather that we give them, the people give power to the government, to the to the oppressor, to the you know, it's a lot of a give and take so that therefore uh acknowledging or uh, raising your awareness for how we give power and how we can retain power is is a whole big discussion how we can uh how we can empower people to um retain their power rather than give it away um is another uh, whole big you know cauldron of truth. uh of truth yeah yeah yeah
3: and i always in terms of power and and truth and one's agency and ideas of control it's it's tough I think about it a lot, and uh, I think that the idea of the Serenity Prayer, the wisdom to know the difference between that which you can change and that which you can't, is uh, is is difficult to come by. That wisdom. Yeah.
1: And what what about Moon Dogs? Enough about Human Rights. Can you tell us a little bit about that book, that work?
3: Uh, it's a song. Moondog is a composer. He was not the perfect man. He was uh, he had some anti-Semitic uh, tendencies, even though. Uh, anyways, and he, but he was, he's, uh, he was. I don't know how much you know about Moondog, but Moondog was a, uh, a composer who was blind. I think not from birth, but through some accident in childhood. And he used to stand on a corner of Sixth Avenue or somewhere in Manhattan, dressed in dressed in this Viking regalia that he had. Um, I think he had made himself. Uh, but he was also kind of this great minimalist composer, or Composer of these counterpoint ditties. I, I'm not an expert. I might be saying that wrong, but that they're beautiful and mystical and um, and uh, and strong and sweet um, uh, compositions. And some of them have lyrics. And uh, one of them is a, a kind of list poem or chant, uh, and it goes uh, 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 something like, uh, "Enough about human rights." And then it lists a bunch of animals. What about cow rights? What about moose rights? What about fly rights? And what about frog rights? Um, and it and it has this it has this uh, litany of um, of the natural world. And it, uh, I I just think that it's a, I think it's a beautiful song that um, positions humanity in a, a more level place with the natural world in which we live. I think you had asked about a, a, a song that, uh, or a piece of artwork that you would uh, that everyone should hear or or experience, and I uh, did a first thought, best thought on that one, and that was the one that came to mind.
1: Yes, thank you, thank you. Um, right. So as we start to wind down, I think we have a few more minutes left. Let me just quickly um, do a couple of quick announcements. Uh, I just want to remind this is the Radio Free Brooklyn, Radio Free Brooklyn is a listener-supported radio. Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community. Important media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us continue to stay on air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or one-time donation at radioforbrooklyn.org donate. If you're an Amazon shopper and like doing it in a way that costs you nothing, go to radioforbrooklyn.com Amazon and register. Radio for Brooklyn as your Amazon small Charity. That way, every time you shop, proportion of your purchase benefits are ready for Brooklyn. If you're listening to this in front of your computer, please download our free mobile apps for iPhone or Android. Available in the App Store for iPhone and Google Play Store for Android. And you can learn about new coming up, upcoming RFP events, like signing up for their newsletter, at ready newsletter. Um, finally, um, May 20th, we're having a, um, special live event. Ready for this proud to present four amazing bands at an outstanding local venue for an evening of rock and music. Um join us on May twentieth at 730 for a night with seventh grade Girl fight, Dirt Bikes, Barrett, and Castle Black, and none other than Ridgrid's own at none other than Zone bar Freda, 801 Seneca Avenue. Tickets are ten dollars and can be purchased at the venue. Okay. Um so yeah, let's just go to the final thoughts. Um any final thoughts on uh, on uh, where? Oh, we can also tell people where to send listeners. We can reiterate where to send listeners to um, follow your news and uh, and get your books, all this kind of stuff. Yeah.
3: Uh, for me, uh, yeah, uh, I have a website. My name is Eugene Lim, and the website is Eugene Lim My Twitter handle is Lim underscore Eugene.
1: Okay, cool. Any final thoughts on the conversation? Anything you want to lead listeners with uh, as we start yeah, to...
3: It's great that a poet and librarian is... Uh, is, uh, is uh, I, you work at a very interesting library, uh, you told me about. You, you want uh, uh, Maybe your listeners are already familiar, but I thought it was fascinating and I hadn't heard of it before. You want to give a quick description of the library that you work in?
1: Sure, it's the is Christine it- Mann Library and the Carl Jung Center. So it's a library that was established in the 40s by the Analytical Psychology Club, and uh, it focuses in on uh, the works as well as the related interests, research interests of Carl Gustav Jung. It was established by Christine Mann, who was the first psychoan- psychoanalyst um, in uh, America, in the United States. Um, in that, at that time, um, she came in and and with a few colleagues, um, the founding mothers. She created uh, the Christie Mann Library, bequeathing her collection uh, after her death, um, uh, you know, for, for, the, for the initial boost uh, of the collection, and then it was developed since then. Um, and now it exists at 28 East 39th Street, and I'm the head librarian there, working there since uh, September of 2021. So, can yeah. everyone go? Yeah, everyone can go, but we have to make an appointment. So yeah, appointment uh, by appointment only. Uh, people can go; it's open to the public. Just uh, write into us or call us, and you set up an appointment to come asked in. You, yeah.
3: when I said, "Oh, I didn't realize it was a, it wasn't a. a I mean, a, a more literary podcast, and I go, "Maybe it's more political." And you said, "Actually, it's more transpersonal." You yeah, know, like, transpersonal psychology.
1: Yeah, I'm actually also studying transpersonal psychology as a master's uh, degree yeah. level, the clinical mental health counseling degree, uh, um, to study a little like, bit more I, into psychology. Yeah.
3: Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, I don't know uh, much about it, but I'm definitely uh, I'm interested in, I mean, and that kind of goes to your concept of consciousness that you spoke of earlier. So, anyway, that's that's very really cool, and I, I'm glad to meet you.
1: Thank you, thank you so much. All right, Scott, any last any last thoughts?
2: No, I want to just thank you, Gene. This was a, a very insightful conversation. I, I definitely want to check out search history um, and some of the other some of the other even articles that I've seen on on, on his site. Um, I know today, you know, being uh, mother's Day as well you know um, I mean we talked a little bit about I guess yeah, French exits and different uh, different ways of etiquette and you know remembering you know just reflecting about how each of us maybe were raised and and, and the manners that we were taught and you know how we maybe stuck to some of them or uh, taken on our own kind of belief systems but uh, you know just want to send out a, a shout out to all mothers, grandmothers um, and
3: uh, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers for sure
2: right
1: Thank you, thank you. So uh, we have a few more minutes, but until the next show comes in, uh, I just want to remind us this is the Truth to Power show. You you can find out more about us uh, at radioforkland.org slash truth to power. Uh, you can find out more about me at vjrnathan.com. Uh, Scott, where can we find out more about you?
2: Uh, you got vscottraven.com uh, uh, yeah. if you'd like, or check out Mayhem Poets. Um
1: all right, cool. Maybe we, can, maybe we can play a song on our way out. Let's see. Please. Yeah, play some.
3: Moondog. Moondogs, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Enough, enough about human life. Definitely, definitely,
1: yeah. yeah. Let's see if I can pull that up. And we have the next joke pulling in here, so it's good timing. Let's see. Um... And, Scott, you're, 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 uh,
3: you're, your work as a what?
2: Yes, I work as a uh, poet with kind of a trio of poets So okay. we, we, we tour, you know, kind of schools, uh, theaters um, And do kind of large performance poetry shows Some group poems, some solo poems um, okay. And that sort of thing And that's just starting to ramp back up again Which has been nice Okay,
1: cool yeah. All right, let's play out that song Thank you so much for being here Thank you guys See you again next week uh, Sunday at 11 Yes Thank you
3: Okay, thanks <laughs>